We are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. These records that we've uncovered don't tell the story. This is CIA files. They tell pieces of it. True stories of U.S. intelligence. This is your host, Brandon Givens, helping you uncover the truth from the lies, sorting the facts from the fictions. John Brennan is our final director to discuss in our series on CIA directors responsible for the U.S.'s present Russia policy. John Brennan is unique in that for a CIA director, he was not shy about expressing his feelings on matters. He shared a background similar to that of William Casey, the first director we discussed in the series. Both were raised Irish Catholics and graduated from the Jesuit-affiliated Fordham University. Casey grew up in Queens, opposite Manhattan to the east, and Brennan in North Bergen, New Jersey, just to the west of Manhattan. Brennan's father was actually from Ireland, a blacksmith by trade. Brennan's formative years were in the 60s and 70s. He was frustrated with the system. He wanted to be the change he wanted to see in the world, something he encourages young Americans to do to this day with his call to public service. Brennan also wanted to see the world. He described himself as a wanderluster. This manifested as him voting for the Communist Party candidate in 1977 and signing up to join the CIA some years later. No one said he wasn't a man of contradictions. Joining the CIA was likely on his mind before graduation, even before voting communist. He spent his junior year, 1975-76, to 76, at the American University of Cairo learning Arabic, and he became fluent. After graduating Fordham with a degree in political science, he attended the University of Texas at Austin to get his master's focusing on Middle East studies. The same year he graduated, he signed up with the CIA. That was 1980. He told them he voted for the Communist Party back in 1977. He thought that would have disqualified him, but it didn't. He related that that increased his trust in the agency's support for freedom of speech. In the 1980s, Brennan was posted to the CIA's Saudi Arabia station where he worked as the agency's political officer. In this role, he was responsible for analyzing political developments in the region and maintaining relationships with Saudi Arabian officials and other key actors. Britain also played a role in the CIA's response to the 1983 bombing of the U.S. Marine Barracks in Beirut, Lebanon. He helped to coordinate intelligence operations in the aftermath of the attack, and later worked on efforts to support the Lebanese government and counter-extremist groups in the region. In the 1990s, Brennan continued to serve in a variety of roles at the CIA. He spent some time as an analyst focused on Middle Eastern affairs, and later served as a briefer for the agency's senior leaders, including the Director of Central Intelligence. From 1994 to 95, Britain was the CIA's daily intelligence briefer for President Bill Clinton. In this role, he was responsible for briefing the president on the latest intelligence developments from around the world and providing analysis and insight to help inform U.S. policy. Britain's time as a presidential briefer was a formative experience for him, 
and he developed a deep appreciation for the importance of intelligence in informing national security decision-making. He also developed a reputation as a skilled and trusted briefer, and his insights and expertise were highly valued by the president and other senior officials. From 1995 to 96, he was executive assistant to CIA Director George Tennant. From 1996 to 99, he was the CIA Station Chief in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Before he could put his family pictures on the desk, 19 American servicemen were killed in the Kobar Tower bombings. The Kobar Tower bombing occurred when a truck bomb blew up a building housing U.S. Air Force personnel who were maintaining the no-fly zone in Iraq. By parking in a lot next to the building, the terrorists were able to get their truck bomb within 72 feet of it. Air Force Security Officer Staff Sergeant Alfredo Muero saw the men park the truck and leave in a getaway vehicle. He reported it and ordered an evacuation. And luckily, many of the people being evacuated had to do so through a marble-encased stairwell. And when the explosion hit, the stairwell was able to withstand it, and they managed to survive the blast. The attack was carried out by Hezbollah. They were upset about troops in Saudi Arabia. And that's interesting because Hezbollah, is being Shia, had little love for Saddam, who oppressed them or the Saudis, who have been their traditional enemies, or the traditional enemies of Shia Iran, at least. In any event, it was in the midst of this tragedy that Brennan got started as a station chief. In 99, his former boss, George Tennant, was made CIA director, and Brennan was made George Tennant's chief of staff. In the 2000s, John Brennan continued to play a prominent role in the U.S. intelligence community. In the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, he was a key figure in the U.S. government's response to the threat of terrorism. His title at the time was Deputy Executive Director of the CIA. In 2003, Brennan was made the first director of the Terrorist Threat Integration Center. This group was rolled into the National Counterterrorism Center, NCTC, in 2004, making Brennan the first director of that organization as well. In this role, he was responsible for coordinating the U.S. government's counterterrorism efforts and working to prevent future attacks. He led the NCTC from 2004 to 2005, and during his tenure, he oversaw the integration of intelligence from across the U.S. government to better identify and disrupt terrorist plots. After leaving the NCTC, Brennan moved to the private sector for a time, but he continued to be involved in the U.S. government's counterterrorism efforts. From 2005 to 2008, he was president and CEO of Analysis Corporation, which was a defense contractor focusing on counterterrorism. In 2008, he served as an advisor to President-elect Barack Obama during the transition period and was appointed Deputy National Security Advisor. 
Obama attempted to appoint him director of the CIA, but during the Bush presidency, Britain had defended sending terror suspects to countries with shoddy human rights records for enhanced interrogation. He faced criticism in the media and withdrew his name from consideration. He was subsequently appointed as assistant to the President for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism in 2009. He remained in that role until 2013. In this position, Britain played a key role in shaping Obama administration's counterterrorism practices, including its use of targeted drone strikes against terrorist targets overseas. He also oversaw the development of the administration's strategy for countering violent extremism, and he worked to build partnerships with other countries to combat the global threat of terrorism. During his time advising Obama, the Benghazi attack occurred. He was dragged by certain elements in the press, but had nothing to do with the situation. To sum up the event, the diplomatic post and a CIA annex in Benghazi were attacked by terrorists, most likely al-Qaeda and Ansar al-Sharia, which is an anti-Qaddafi faction intent on making their interpretation of Sharia law the law of the land. In the autopsy of events, it was found that the intelligence community had warned the State Department that al-Qaeda was operating in Benghazi and the security presence should be increased. The State Department wanted to keep a low profile, so they refused the recommendations. Additionally, a movie considered blasphemous to many Muslims called The Innocence of Muslims was released. There were protests against the movie worldwide, with American embassies often the focal point. The terrorists were able to use the protest as camouflage, and it worked well to create confusion about, after the fact, about motive. We saw something like this in Kazakhstan in January 2022. There were anti-government protests, and then there were well-armed anti-government protesters burning down buildings and killing people sussing out what damage was done by anti-government protesters and what damage was done by an organized militia or terrorist group is difficult to say the least. It's an effective method to confuse authorities and then create doubt after the fact about what occurred. Organized terrorist groups mixed with an understaffed security force combined with a touch of citywide protest created the perfect storm for the diplomatic post to be attacked. Soon after these attacks, Brennan was offered a promotion. And just like we learned with our episode on Gates, controversy can be forgotten. It seems almost customary to be a CIA director. Like you, you have to be nominated. You have to withdraw your name due to controversy. And then, after a few years, once renominated, it's clear sailing. In any event, in 2013, Brennan was appointed as director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, though this time, Benghazi haunted him more than his support for enhanced interrogation. 
One of the defining issues of Brennan's tenure as CIA director was the agency's response to the threat posed by ISIS, which emerged as a major terrorist organization in Iraq and Syria in 2014. Brennan oversaw the agency's efforts to gather intelligence on ISIS and to coordinate with other U.S. government agencies and foreign partners to disrupt the group's operations and limit its, its territorial gains. Russia, of course, had a heavy hand in Syria. We still do. It's Brennan's actions toward Russia that put him on our list. Now, not one to keep his mouth shut during his tenure as CIA director, John Brennan was a vocal critic of Russia and its president, Vladimir Putin. He believed that Russia posed a significant threat to U.S. national security, and he worked to counter its influence in a number of ways. Brennan was particularly concerned about Russia's interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, which he saw as an unprecedented attack on American democracy. He was a strong proponent of the intelligence community's assessment that Russia had carried out a coordinated campaign of hacking and disinformation aimed at undermining the candidacy of Hillary Clinton and boosting that of Donald Trump. Brennan also saw Russia as a key player in a number of other global security challenges, including the conflicts in Syria and Ukraine. He was critical of Russia's support for the Assad regime in Syria, which he saw as prolonging the country's civil war and exacerbating the humanitarian crisis there. That threat was directly related to his expertise in Middle Eastern affairs. He advocated supporting Syrian rebels. He also condemned Russia's annexation of Crimea and its ongoing support for separatist rebels in eastern Ukraine. He incidentally greatly increased the CIA's cybersecurity presence, which will be discussed a bit later. Britain's policy toward Russia was one of vigilance and containment. With that in mind, Brennan put together Operation Crossfire Hurricane, which was the investigation into Russian efforts to infiltrate the Trump campaign. The whole business got started because of a Trump staffer named George Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos was working for the London Center of International Law Practice when he accepted the job with the Trump campaign. He was going to be like the um, foreign policy advisor. Now, one of the last things he did with the London Center was to go to Link Campus University in Rome for, you know, some business dealings there. While there, he met Professor Joseph Mifsud. He told Mifsud about his new job as a foreign policy advisor for Trump. Later, Mifsud called up Papadopoulos while he was in London and asked him to meet up. And they did. And Mifsud brought along a woman who claimed to be Putin's niece. A few weeks later, after this contact, Mifsud contacted Papadopoulos again and, you know, says, hey, uh, the Russians have emails that could be damaging to Hillary and they could be released to help the Trump campaign. Now, Mifsud denies all this, but he has since disappeared to be occasionally spotted like Elvis. Like, no, seriously, like the guy's a ghost now. He disappeared in October 2017, but his girlfriend heard from him last, uh, let's see, February 2018, and he was allegedly photographed in Switzerland in 2018 as well. 
and sent a voice recording to the press in 2019. But there hasn't been a peep since then. Anyway, back to Papadopoulos. He bumps into Australian High Commissioner to Britain, Alexander Downer, and they have drinks. In casual conversation, Papadopoulos tells him that the Russians have some emails that could hurt the Hillary campaign. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Oh, that was in May. Now, Downer probably thought nothing of it, or if he did, and he reported to Australian, uh, the Australian intelligence community, they, they thought nothing of it. But in July, the DNC server emails were uploaded to WikiLeaks. Now, quickly after that, Australian intelligence told the CIA about the Papadopoulos-Downer conversation. Now, remember, the CIA cannot investigate Americans on American soil. That's FBI's job. So that July, Brennan created a special group of CIA, FBI, and NSA to investigate Russian election interference. And now you know the true origin of the investigation. Contrary to popular belief, it was not the Steele dossier. That was July, and Trump took office in January. Brennan, along with FBI Director James Comey and other heads of the intelligence community, briefed incoming President Trump on Russian election interference and the Steele dossier, amongst other things. Brennan later said of Trump that he didn't believe Trump had a full appreciation of Russian capabilities. He was also displeased that Trump compared the intelligence community to Nazi Germany. Coming from Brennan, that is understandable. Would Nazis have hired an agent who told them he had voted communist? Eh, well, maybe. Huh? Anyway... Brennan has been none too impressed with Trump and hasn't been shy about saying it to the point of getting involved in Twitter flame wars. Because that's where we are as a nation. Rand Paul joined the Twitter flame war to say he would suggest Trump revoke Brennan's security clearance. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee announced that Brennan's security clearance was revoked. It turned out that it never was. In any event, the excuse given for the fictional revocation was that Brennan was profiting off of his experience with the CIA. Former CIA agents and others in the intelligence community protested, as they didn't understand why they should give up their freedom of speech, as long as they were not giving away classified information, just because they served their country in the intelligence community. Retired Admiral William McRaven wrote an op-ed asking Trump to take his security clearance too, as it would be a badge of honor. Concerning China, in his memoir, Brennan addresses the rise of China as a global power and its implications for U.S. national security. 
He argues that the U.S. needs to take a strategic and coordinated approach to countering China's influence, both economically and militarily. Now, no director can exist without criticism. As mentioned before, Brennan was a strong defender of the CIA's enhanced interrogation program, which involved the use of harsh techniques such as waterboarding on terrorism suspects. This program was later found to be ineffective and illegal, and Brennan faced criticism for his role in promoting and defending it. Brennan has supported expanding surveillance and data collection programs, which some saw or see as a threat to individual privacy and civil liberties. In particular, he defended the controversial NSA bulk data collection program, which was later ruled unconstitutional. And just like Director Gates, he was seen as being insufficiently transparent with Congress and the public about the CIA's activities. He also seems to have had a large role to play in the Obama administration's famed drone strikes. Britain was a strong advocate for their use in targeting and killing suspected terrorists, but this strategy was criticized by some for causing civilian casualties and violating international law. Embarrassingly, his personal email was hacked in 2014. However, there was no sensitive information in it. The Americans and Brit responsible were found and prosecuted. Probably not a good idea to hack the director of the CIA if you are in a legal jurisdiction where the feds can get to you. Now, concerning his um, desires, like what he wanted or reforms he tried, uh, he, he mentions uh, various ones in his memoirs. He was a strong advocate for the CIA's use of technology and data analytics to gather intelligence and inform decision-making. He established a new Directorate of Digital Innovation to oversee the agency's use of technology. And he pushed for increased investment in cutting-edge tools and techniques. In short, he hired a bunch of hackers. He added 10 new such mission centers. Often within the intelligence community, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So he oversaw a major reorganization of the CIA's structure, which was aimed at breaking down stovepipes and encouraging greater collaboration across the agency's various directorates. He created a new directorate of analysis to improve the quality and speed of intelligence analysis, and he established new units focused on cyber operations and open source intelligence. Again, he was trying to catch the CIA up with the cyber threats of today and catch the CIA up with what new tools are available. Britain recognized the importance of working closely with other intelligence agencies and with foreign partners, and he made efforts to strengthen those relationships. He established new liaison offices around the world and worked to streamline information sharing between the CIA and other agencies. 
Brennan went a step farther than Gates. He was committed to promoting diversity and inclusion within the CIA, and he worked to increase the representation of women and minorities in leadership positions. He also made efforts to recruit and retain a diverse workforce and to foster a culture of inclusion and respect. And as stated early in this episode, in his memoir, he emphasized the importance of public service and the need for patriotic individuals to step up and serve their country. Britton describes a few regrets in his memoir. One of the biggest regrets uh, Britton discusses is his support for the CIA's Enhanced Interrogation Program, which, as mentioned before, involved techniques such as waterboarding. Brennan came to regret his position. He writes, I regret it because it was not consistent with our values as Americans, and it did not make us safer. It should be noted that this is something he seems to waffle on. As late as 2014, he defended enhanced interrogation as something providing useful information. Now, Brennan also discusses his regrets about the Benghazi attack which occurred during his tenure as Deputy National Security Advisor for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. He writes that he should have done more to push for increased security at the U.S. diplomatic facility in Benghazi, and he was deeply saddened by the deaths of four Americans in the attack. I would say in his defense, it was the State Department's call, but maybe if he had held his breath long enough, they would have listened. Any conversation about Brennan would not be complete without considering how he is portrayed in the media and reflected upon through the lens of his associations with Obama. He's very often painted as weak or soft on terror. Uh, But this is a man who openly supported enhanced interrogation throughout most of his career, and he helped craft the drone program which whether you agree with the drone program or not, one thing it wasn't was soft on terrorists. And love him or hate him, Brendan, he tells it like he sees it. And uh, he faces the consequences for doing so. And he seems to face them gladly. There's some interesting things going on in the news today. First story I'd like to talk about is about the Donbass Davushka. Uh, kind of translate as um, Donbass girl. All right, she's a podcaster. They got Telegram and uh, Twitter, and her story is that she's a Ukrainian Jew living in Luhansk, and has been you know, reporting on the war and, and giving her story. Well, some open source intelligence people are, well, it's actually a group called NAFO that helped out her, the National, excuse me, the North American Fella Association. And they noticed that her voice and apartment matched that of a woman named Sarah Bills, who is known for uh, tropical fish and is on different podcasts talking about tropical fish. So Sarah Beals is a former NCO with the United States Navy, 
she was uh, released. Uh, she was demoted and released. The exact story or reasons why are unclear. Uh, my understanding is she said it involved her having a, a car accident, perhaps drunk driving incident. But this is a, a kind of a bizarre human being and that she is a, or had been a, a sailor for the U.S. government and has now been cosplaying as someone completely fictitious, this pro-Russian Ukrainian. Now, if you look at her Twitter profile, there is a hint about her motive. And whatever her name is, it's kind of cute. It's like at Pamini Pusha. Uh, I think Pelmini are like um, little little dumplings. And her big thing is saying, oh, we're seeking out the truth. It's this uh, great potential weapon, a strong defense. And our goal is to foster the emergence of a multipolar world where a multitude of voices can be heard. And that is seems to be the big propaganda push you get from Russia or anyone who is against the United States government is this claim that the United States seeks a unipolar world, and maybe that's true, and that Russia provides an alternative voice and viewpoint. I am sympathetic to having a multipolar world. However, I'm not exactly sure if Vladimir Putin's voice is the other voice we should be listening to as a society. But nonetheless, she seems to think that it is. She also um, has quite a big following. I don't see that she has posted in some time, but she was instrumental in spreading the leak done by Mr. Jack Tejera, who was also, well, who was an airman. Uh, he was in, yeah, in the Air Force, I think it was the Air National Guard, if memory serves me correctly, and he released a lot of top secret information. Now, one of the things that kind of surprises me or depresses me about this is there just seems to be money and influence and lying or propaganda and just making stuff up about the United States or the war itself. Now, I make no secret about my sympathy for the Ukrainian cause and my desire for a Ukrainian victory. I would like to do my part to fight this sort of disinformation. The next story I would like to talk about is... Uh, something of a practical joke or using the intelligence community to troll pro-Russian individuals into setting fire to police stations in Russia. All right, so what has happened is a number of elderly people receive phone calls from agents of the police or military intelligence, so they believe and they are told that a certain building or location, quite often a military recruiting office, a recruitment office, or a police station has been infiltrated or is overrun by Ukrainian forces or agitators. And so they should go light a Molotov cocktail and throw it through the window. And there have been 16 such attacks so far. One 73-year-old woman, uh, she tried to set the military recruitment office 
and Pervorosk on fire twice. And, you know, once arrested, she said, well, this is a secret operation by the security services against terrorists. And the investigator, she even named her, her handler, I guess you would say, Investigator Lebedev. A lot of these people, they're not even running away from the police because they believe they're doing, that they are acting under the law, that that's what they're supposed to be doing. Most of the people who are doing this are senior citizens. However, a younger gentleman, a 22-year-old student, he tried to set fire to an ATM after he received a call from a would-be handler or investigator that told him that the ATM was being used to send money to terrorists from Ukraine. So I have to say this is a pretty clever trick that the Ukrainian services have going on. Our next story is a bit of a Robin Hood story in a way, or vigilante justice. Someone managed to identify 200 or so cryptocurrency wallets that were owned by the Russian government, different intelligence agencies. And this person was able to get cryptocurrency out of them. And he or she at first burned something like $300,000 worth of Bitcoin, but then figured, well, why don't I just send this this, uh, cryptocurrency to Ukraine instead? And that's what the person did. When the person got the cryptocurrency out of these wallets, uh, he or she left messages in Russia to the owners of the wallets in which he stated that uh, these wallets were used to pay for the services of hackers working for Russia. Now, there's some thought that maybe this person was one of those hackers, perhaps a Ukrainian or a Russian who supports Ukraine. And then, you know, this was a bit of an inside job. It's uh, kind of funny and interesting in, in either event. Our last story of the day involves two alleged Chinese agents. Uh, both are U.S. citizens, Liu Jianwang and Chen Jinping. They're accused of operating a sort of underground, uh, you know, like speakeasy-style underground Chinese police station. Uh, they've been released on bond. Now, the Chinese government considers it a smear campaign and that the U.S. government is slandering China and the claims have no factual basis. But the U.S. government is also charging 34 Chinese police officers. Now, these 34 Chinese police officers, they live within the Republic of China and work for a group called the 912 Special Project Working Group. Uh, this they're kind of a online army. They want to influence global perceptions about the People's Republic of China. So what do they do? They post things that are pro-China and things that are uh, either anti-American or things to divide and conquer. You know, stirring up, you know, uh, COVID-19 conspiracies hyping up stories about racial inequality or protest in general, just anything that can cause uh, civil strife within the United States. 
Perhaps the most serious uh, accusations, though, is the two agents uh, posted videos that were intent, you know, with the intention of intimidating uh, Chinese dissidents, pro-democracy dissidents within the United States, uh, up to and including death threats. Well, establishing a physical presence within the U.S., an actual like location where people could be swept away to or taken to, that makes those threats uh, a lot more real. It's very common for dictatorships to try to crush dissident voices even outside of their own nation. And the United States is making the claim that that's happening on U.S. soil. And they're not standing for it. Thank you for listening. If you support independent media, subscribe, like, and share. Reviews and interactions help us greatly. So please leave a comment or suggestion. Tell us who you want us to profile next. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. Visit our site at ciafiles.net. From there, you can easily add us to your socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and buy some of that sweet CIA Files swag.